How bold are you? And I don't mean bold by naughty, because I know how bold you are. How bold are you? If I had a boldometer on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being timid and fearful of everything, and 10 being afraid of nothing, I wonder where you would be in your boldness scale. Three. Thanks. We uh, were woken up, or we woke up at about 6 o'clock this morning, and my wife turned to me in her lovely, romantic 6 a.m. voice and said, Craig, there's a wasp in the room. (laughs) I said, well, I had heard it for the last 10 minutes, I have to be honest. And I said, I'll get it. Don't you worry, love. You've got a man who knows where the spray is. And so, uh, but... uh, I wonder how, how bold you are. I think how bold we are depends on a number of things. It depends on the circumstance, doesn't it? It depends on... Some of us are more afraid of some things than others, like wasps and bees and spiders and anything creepy-crawly. Some of us are more scared of heights and stuff like that. How bold are you? How bold are you when it comes to other people? How bold are you when it comes to expressing an opinion that's not popular? I think it depends on what the, what the situation is, but it also depends on who we're with and how bold we are. When I finished university in my early 20s, I went to live in the States for almost uh, two years in, in Cleveland, Ohio. And out there, uh, one of my best friends was called Greg, Greg and Craig. And... Uh, and he was about six foot six and twenty something stone. He had been an American football player at university. People often confused us, um, <laughs> and uh, and and we were out one night, and uh, he was built like a tank. And uh, we were out one night in Cleveland, and he went off to the bathroom or something, and I, I was left sitting on my own. And these three guys came over who had had a bit too much to drink and started. To, to try to cause a bit of hassle. And I know you're looking at me thinking I could take three guys really easily. Um, but, but it actually was a bit intimidating at the time. These three guys were standing over me. They were just spouting off. They wanted to cause trouble. Um, for some reason, they didn't like Irish people. Um, at that point, I tried to tell them I was British because I'll use either passport to get out of trouble. I don't care. Um, and, uh, but they were, they, you know, and it was starting to get a little bit uh, intimidating and, and uh, a little bit scary. Until this shadow appeared behind them, and my friend, Big Greg, appeared, and he said, what's going on, lads? And uh, I said, yeah, he's with me. (laughs) Do you want to fight? I mean, I know you, we follow the Prince of Peace, but at that moment, I wanted to punch them in the throat. And uh, uh, and I, I I became a lot more bold. Because Big Greg was there. And you know what was amazing? Suddenly they weren't just as bold. They didn't want to fight anymore. They were very apologetic and wanted just to get on with the night themselves. But my boldness came from having Big Greg with me. Big Greg gave me boldness. And sometimes it's not the situation. It's who's with you that gives you the boldness. It was the presence of someone bigger than me. And we have been looking at Acts chapters 1 to 4 in this series called The Life-Given Church. And I think if there was one word that characterized the early church, it was this. It was boldness. They were a people who were bold. Bold about their faith. Bold in the face of adversity. Bold in the face of intimidation. We see the word boldness 
appearing again and again throughout the book of Acts. I don't have time to read them all, but look at a few of them if you can. Um, Acts 4.29, now consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Acts 9.28, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Then uh, Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Uh, Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly. Acts 18, he began to speak boldly. Acts 19, arguing persuasively, he spoke boldly. Acts 28, with all boldness and without hindrance. I believe it was a holy boldness that enabled the early church, these first Christians, to turn the world upside down. And let's look at what this holy boldness expressed itself as, what it looked like on a day-to-day basis and what it might look like for us as the church in the 21st century. How might we be a people who have a holy boldness? And it's strange because I had this message written by Thursday. I was at the Causeway Coast Conference on Friday and uh, a prophet called Julian Adams came up to me and he, he, he literally, I had called this holy boldness and he put his hand on my chest. After his seminar had finished while he was pregnant, he said, you have a holy boldness. And uh, it was just a confirmation that this is what God wants to speak to us about. So last Sunday... If you were here, we saw Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for alms, held it his palms, and this is what Peter did say. And, uh, and they healed this guy, this guy who has been crippled from birth. He's, he's over 40 years old. They heal him. He gets up, starts doing strictly all around the temple. It causes a stir. Everyone notices because everyone knows him because he's been there for years. They've passed him every day. They know who he is. He's the guy who sits outside and begs. And here he is doing electric boogaloo, breakdance to moonwalking like Michael Jackson across the temple courts and people are stirred up and they want to know what it is. It gathers a crowd. And what does Peter do? He uses the opportunity to preach the gospel because that's what preachers love to do. When you get a crowd, you tell them about Jesus. And remember in Acts chapter 2, we saw Peter preaching. That was his first sermon. His second sermon really is not too different. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about the political regime. It's not about moral issues. It's not about this or that the other. He preaches Christ and he calls people to repent. He calls people to turn away from themselves and their sin and put their faith in Jesus. Look at verses 1 to 4 of Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So they're preaching, they're declaring the word of God and the, the, the Jewish uh, leaders and the captain of the temple guard come up because this is in the temple grounds, remember this happened. And they're greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, They put them in jail until the next day. Well, at least they didn't have to look for a hotel that night. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000, which is funny, isn't it? I mean, we read this stuff. So Peter and John are preaching. Here's an example. I'm preaching up here today about Jesus. The PSNI walk in, they arrest me, cuff me, and all of you go, we want to follow that Jesus too, as they're leading me into Lurgan Police Station, where I had to visit this week to hand in my license, but we'll not talk about that. Um, 
That's another story. The Lord's promoting me through acceleration. Um, but it would be, it's crazy. They come and they arrest Peter and John. They, they cuff them, they put them in jail, and 5,000 men go, we want to follow that Jesus too, and their wives and children do this as well. It's crazy. There was something so dynamically attractive about the gospel and about the proclamation of Jesus Christ. But the Sadducees didn't like it because they were sad, you see. Um, no, they, they were the elite religious leaders of the day. We read, and if you've read the New Testament at all, you'll know that we read often about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were two different groups of people. The Sadducees were the wealthy elite. They were the educated. They were the intellectual. They were the, the people of the day who were from... Uh, They were from wealthy, well-dignified backgrounds, but they kept God out there. They believed in God, but he was a a God who was out there, and he wasn't involved in our lives personally. Uh, They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection or life after death. They had a nice, respectable, dignified religion where God was a means for them to live with power and status within the community. God was a means for their ends, to, to be respected and dignified within the local community. And so when they hear about what Peter and John have been preaching, and when they see the stir and the commotion that this is causing among the people that they have power and authority over, they're not one bit happy because it upsets the status quo. It doesn't fit into the little box that they've put God into. They don't want anything too different. They don't want anything new. They don't want any religion that has any emotion attached to it. And they definitely don't want anything supernatural going on. I wonder if you've ever met any Christians or churches like that. (laughs) As I was preparing this, I wrote that now, and my goodness me, this could be prophetic, eh? Christians who don't want anything different, new, anything emotional or supernatural going on in their church because they like it just the way it is. They're like a nice, dignified, respectable Sunday religion. And so to shut Peter and John up, they have them arrested and thrown in jail for the night. You know, people sometimes don't mind talking about God in a vague way. They don't even mind talking about religion in church sometimes. As long as it's kept out there, as long as it's some sort of spirituality, God kept out there. But as soon as you start speaking about Jesus Christ, God who wants to know us, a God who is personal, a God who loves us, and a God who calls us to lay down our lives, to to repent from sin and to follow him, that's when they get uncomfortable. We have churches where it's all about dead religious rituals and routines. We have ministers and congregations who love tradition more than they love Jesus. They're more devoted to respectability and looking dignified than they are to worshiping Jesus. They care more about their power and status in the community than they do about the power and presence of God. And if anything or anyone upsets the religious status quo, believe it or not, there's some people who will react strongly against that. They want to hear nice short sermons about world peace, recycling and being nice people. Because that's what Jesus talked about all the time. Not. But if you start preaching about repentance and Christ and salvation and being born again and turning away from sin and laying down your life for the gospel and, 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 and the cross and dying to self, they'll throw you out. 
The simple reality of life is this, that if you want to follow Jesus passionately, if you want to pursue him, there will always be people who will be uncomfortable with that, and it will normally be religious people. Because living like that shows that God is alive, and most people don't mind talking about God as if he's not interested in our lives. Following Christ isn't always the most popular option. I came across an excerpt from John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. And I use this today because my father-in-law is here and he's a Methodist minister. And not only is that a Methodist minister, he's also, it's his birthday today. And I, I won't tell you what the age he is, but it's a seven and a zero in it. Um, <laughs> but uh, John Wesley, who actually was an Anglican vicar, he never intended to start the Methodist church. Most people don't know that. He was a, a Church of England vicar who had an encounter with Jesus that radically transformed his life. And it was at a time when the Church of England was all about nice, dignified, respectable, traditional religion. And by the excitement about one passionate sermon last week, it's probably still about nice, dignified, respectable, traditional religion. But John Wesley is properly saved by Jesus. He's filled with the Spirit. His heart is strangely warmed, as he says. In other words, he's on fire. And he starts preaching the gospel, and the Church of England can't handle it. And so they throw him out, and they, and he, and, and they don't want him preaching like that in their churches because it's undignified. And so where does he go to preach? He preaches in fields. He goes out into the country, and anywhere that there's people, he preaches. And this is what he wrote in his journal of his preaching Sunday a.m., May 5th, preached at St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday p.m., May 5th, preached at St. John's, Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m., May 12th, preached at St. Jude's, can't go back there either. Sunday p.m., May 12th, preached at St. George's, kicked out again. Sunday a.m., May 19th, preached at St. Somebody Else's, Deacon's called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday p.m., May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday a.m., May 26th, what day is today? 27th. Um, preached out in a meadow, chased out of the meadow when a bull was turned loose during the service. <laughs> you can imagine that here, can't you? Sunday a.m., June 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m., June 2nd, afternoon service, preached in pasture, 10,000 people came. I love that. The religious people in the establishment might not want to hear about the real Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures, but the ordinary people did. Because when you live a life that's on fire, people are irresistibly drawn so that they can find out what you're so passionate about. And the same thing happened here in Acts. The religious leaders didn't want to hear it. But look at the impact that Peter and John have on the crowds. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So we've had 3,000 just a few. And it's, I mean, that's good preaching. 3,000 in his first sermon, plus women and children. 5,000 in his second sermon. Um, so the church at this stage is probably a summer between around 15,000 when you add women and children to it. You see, here's the thing. Religious people think that if you water down the gospel, it attracts people. And they've done it for hundreds of years they think you know what let's get rid of anything that offends so let's get rid of the supernatural because we are rationalistic 21st century enlightened people so supernatural out the window 
Let's get rid of anything that impinges upon our morality because God really wants us to be happy and do what we want. And uh, so anything about personal morality, human sexuality, let's not deal with that either because that offends people. So let's not talk about that. Repentance from sin. Now, people don't like the word sin. They like to think they're good people. So let's not talk about sin. Let's just tell people how great they are. So let's deal, put the sin thing to one side. So what are you left with? You're left with Jesus was nice. He was nice to people and he helped people. And if you're a Christian, you be nice to people and help people too. And that is the gospel that is preached in many places today. Because we don't want to offend. We don't want to be controversial. We want everybody to love us. We want everybody to think we're great. We want people to come flocking into church. And you know what the only churches that close are? The people who preach a nice, wishy-washy, watered-down gospel. And those places either become restaurants, carpet warehouses, or mosques. All over the land. England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. There are churches that are carpet warehouses, Indian restaurants, and mosques. And the only one of those three I like is the middle one, the Indian restaurants. (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? We somehow think that if we water it down, it makes it attractive. Why would people want to commit their lives to something that they don't have to change at all? People know they're messed up. People know they're sinners. They mightn't like to be told it in the street by a guy with a loud healer and a sandwich board. But deep down they know that they need something or someone more. That they are screwed up. That their family has fallen apart. That their life has fallen apart. That they're addicted. That they don't know where to turn. And by telling them, well, you're actually just fine the way you are, offers absolutely no help whatsoever to them. Passion persuades. Boldness brings people Your passion for Christ will always convince people more than wishy-washy, trying to be cool and culturally relevant and politically correct religion. And what you'll find is that the greatest rejection often comes not from those outside the church, but from inside the church. That's what I have found as a preacher. That it's not those outside the church, because actually people outside the church, there's something within them that they they want the truth. Why did Donald Trump get elected otherwise? That's not even a political statement. That's just a sociological statement. Donald Trump got elected because people wanted to hear the truth, even if they didn't even like how it was packaged. They knew that there was something about him that he wasn't spouting the same rubbish as everybody else before him was. Whether you like him or loathe him, that doesn't matter. He got it because people, within the human heart, there's something that senses this is true or this is not. This is authentic or this is fake. This is real or this isn't. There is something within people. And when you live with authentic passion and boldness and uncompromising, relentless determination to put Jesus first, people will notice and they may be a little uncomfortable at first, but they will love it. Because there's something within the human heart in this world of fake news and fake everything else that just wants the real and the authentic. One of the men I look up to is the late Roland Hutchinson. Some of you will have heard of Roland. I'm still very close to his family, his widow and uh, some of his family were at my institution here. Maureen Hutchinson was here at my my introduction service, I was in touch with her this week because it was the anniversary of Roland's death. Roland was a Church of Ireland minister uh, 
40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, at a time when there were no or very few born-again evangelicals in the Church of Ireland. And they didn't know what to do with Roland because he was bold, he was fearless, he was passionate. His <laughs> Maureen says, I remind her often um, in some ways. I just say things and don't care what people think. Um, and uh, But he was he was fearless in preaching the gospel. And the bishop of down under more at that stage wasn't a, a Christian in, in the sense that we would believe. He didn't love the Lord. And they didn't know what to do with Roland. They stuck him down in the most far out places they could. And in the end, they... They thought, where can we stick him? And at that stage, there was a wee country town that nobody was living in called Marilyn. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't like the Marilyn now. It was the Marilyn then. Yeah? We've got the Marilyn posse rebelling in there somewhere in the middle there. And demons are flying out of them right now. Um, but, but they stuck him in Marilyn because they thought, well, nobody lives there apart from a few cows and sheep and 23 people who own those cows and sheep who will mostly be working on a Sunday morning. So let's stick him in Marilyn because what damage can he do? And Ma- Roland went into Marilyn and he was there for 21 years from 1974 to 1995. And week in, week out, he preached the gospel and they hated. And he week, week in, he, week out, he talked about Jesus and repentance from sin and turning to Christ and being born again. And they hated it. And for years they hated it. They did not want to hear it, but there was nothing they could do because the bishop had nowhere else to put him. And, uh, but he kept preaching. And, you know, over time the dam began to break. And first a few people became Christians. Then... There was a steady stream until every single week people were giving their lives to Jesus Christ. But there was one man in the congregation, Maureen told me this story. There was one man who was having none of it. He liked his religion the way it was. A nice distant God who didn't impinge on his life in any way. And this man was not going to sit back and let Roland preach the gospel. He was one of those people who, whose motto wasn't, I was here before you and I'll be here after you. You know those people? And... Uh, he made it his job to try and undermine Roland at every point. He would talk about Roland behind his back. He, would have, he was on the vestry, obviously, because people like that get elected to vestries. And, and uh, not in our church. <laughs> we have a brilliant management team, can I say? But uh, he would try to undermine. He would always vote against Roland, no matter what. He would undermine him publicly, privately. He tore him down. He talked about him. He criticized him. And Maureen told me that even though Roland was so bold and fearless, this man started to intimidate him. In fact, they would come home at lunch and Maureen would say to Roland, he was in church today, wasn't he? And she could just tell by her husband's facial expression that this man was the congregation that Sunday morning. And it actually affected Roland. But Roland knew that if he were to be wholehearted in what God had called him to do, he couldn't allow any opposition to this to stop him preaching the gospel. And so week in and week out, Roland preached about Jesus. And week in and week out, this man openly opposed him and criticized him. Until years later, one day this man came to Roland, weeping and gave his life to Christ. You know, if you want to be wholehearted for Jesus, if you want to be fully devoted, there will be people who don't like it. One of the greatest dangers today is that we have a a generation of Christians whose greatest desire is to be popular in culture and not to please Christ. We want to be cool. And often we're too cool to be true. We want everybody to like us. 
We want everybody, and I, I you know, I want to be liked. It's hard to believe some of you, but I do. I do. I want to be liked. Who doesn't? I don't want to be criticized. We want to be liked, and we don't want to be labelled as a certain type of Christian either. And I get that. We don't want to be labelled as a right-wing fundamentalist, you know. And so, in trying to get away from that, I think we go the other way, and we we just kind of just it's all bland. It's just Jesus loves you. Do what you want. And yet, there's something within the world that desperately needs to see bold, authentic Christians who will stand strong, who have some iron in their back, who have, who have some inner strength, who will stand for what's right even when it's uncomfortable and even when it's unpopular and even when people don't like it. Even in the face of opposition, even in the face of religious opposition, don't water down the message. Press into God and draw courage and strength from him. Keep going. But we're not going to get everything done. I know that. But that's okay. The next day, verse 5. And the next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. For salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. (laughs) Bold Christians point to Jesus as the only way to God. Peter and John are brought before the Jewish authorities. And look at their names. Did you notice that? The Jewish officials. Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. Do those names sound familiar? Let's go back 50 days, 60 days. John 18, verse 12. The detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, that year. In other words, Peter and John are brought before the two men who sentenced Jesus to be crucified. Less than two months before this. Who is to say that the exact same fate is not about to happen to them? And so if I was Peter and John, the temptation would be, tone it down. Back off. Water it down. Keep your head down. Keep quiet. Let's not upset the apple cart. Let's just get out of here with our heads still on our shoulders. Not exactly what Peter and John do. Look at verses 10 and 12 again. They said, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you, yes, Annas, Anna with an S, Caiaphas, you crucified him. It is by his name that this man has been healed. For salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to this by which we must be saved. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved except Jesus. Could they be any more in your face? 
They preach that it's always Jesus, it's only Jesus, it's all Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the only way to God. There is no other way. And 2,000 years ago, that was controversial because, believe it or not, they were as multi-faith, multi-pluralistic a culture as we are today. But it's even more offensive today to say that there is one way to God and his name is Jesus. Because what you're saying is that other religions are wrong. Whether you're saying it directly or indirectly, you're saying that there is no other way except Christ. And so every other religion has got it wrong because they are not the same. And to say they're the same is to disrespect all of them. They are so fundamentally different. Either one is right or none are right, but they're not all the same. All roads do not lead to the same place. And in our culture of tolerance and political correctness gone mad and people who are out there just dying to be offended and and where people say, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. Let's just keep it to ourselves. Faith was never meant to be private. Your faith in Jesus is personal, but it is not private. It is personal between you and God, but it is not private. It is public. It is something that the world needs to see. And to say that Jesus Christ and Jesus alone is the only way to God the Father today in 2018 is one of the most politically incorrect, inflammatory statements you can make. I want to tell you that. But we need to realize it was just the same 2,000 years ago. And yet Peter boldly declares that salvation is found in no one else. And that there is no other name that can save except the name of Jesus. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Krishna. No name except Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God because Jesus is the only sinless son of God who died for me and was raised to life. Krishna didn't die for me. Buddha didn't die for me. Muhammad died for me, didn't die for me. Only one man died for me and his name is Jesus. And therefore only the one who died and took my sin is the one who can save me from my sin. No one else can. Because if there was any other way, do you not think God would have taken it? That's, the way, that's what I always come back to. If there was any other way, I am a father of a son. He's my only son. He's my beloved son. With him I am well proud. And he is, if you touch a hair on his head, you have trouble with me. God the Father gave his only son and watched as people nailed him to a cross and spat on him and stuck thorns into his head. If there was any other way to save you, would he not have taken it? Think about it. Like, think about it. It was the Father's love for you that allowed humans to do that to his only son. If there was any other way, the father would have taken it. His father couldn't even look. He turned his face away because his son was being so tortured and was going through so much. If there was any other way, but there's no other way. There's no other way except through Jesus. And to tell people that there are other ways or to not tell people that Christ is the only way is not loving. It's the most unloving thing you can do is not to tell people about Christ. It's like somebody dying of cancer and you having a cure and saying, well, I don't want to offend them, so I'll keep it to myself. 
It is the most loving thing you can do to tell people. Jesus said it himself, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am one way. I am one of many truths. I am the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there's many ways people come to Jesus in all sorts of ways. But there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Christ. And in our postmodern world, where people want to say all roads lead to heaven, it is going to take a holy boldness and courage to tell people that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way to God. I want to tell you, don't be arrogant. We do not need more arrogant Christians. We do not need more rude Christians. This is not about putting down people of other faiths, okay? We love people of other faiths. We love them into heaven. We love people of any faith, any background. We love people no matter what their past is. We love people no matter what their sexual orientation is. We love people no matter what their political persuasion is. We do not care about what your background is. We love them. We love them. We love them because Jesus loved them and God sent his son to die for them. We love them, okay? We do not be rude to them. We do not break their windows. We do not uh, put them out of the community. We do not tell them that we don't want their type around here. We love people of every background, religion, and faith, but we point them to Jesus. Because that is the most loving thing we can do. Let's keep moving. I love this verse. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, yeah, I knew I forgot to turn my timer on. Um, I don't know why I keep it here. Um, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They're looking at Peter and John and they're saying, how are these guys doing this? They don't have degrees. They don't have PhDs. They haven't been to Bible college. They're not rich. They're not famous. They're not powerful or important by the world standards. Look at what it says. They're unschooled, ordinary men. They're ordinary people. They're nobodies just like you and me. So what's the difference that makes a difference? What's the most important thing that they know about Peter and John? It says they took note that these men had been with Jesus. (laughs) They took note that these men had been with Jesus. If you want to live a life which is passionate, which is on fire, which pursues God, which is bold, which is courageous, which shares the gospel, the most important thing you can do is be with Jesus. I know I sound like a broken record sometimes, but the most important thing you can do is daily get on your knees and spend time with Jesus. Daily open the word of God and spend time with Jesus. Every week gather with God's people and spend time with Jesus. That will change your life more than education degrees or knowledge verses 14 to 22 but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there before them there was nothing they could say so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together what are we going to do with these men they asked everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we can't even deny it but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his name they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who had been miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So they call him Peter and John and they don't know what to do with him because everybody's celebrating. And these people are people pleasers. So... 
they, they don't want to be seen to be too harsh with Peter and John. So they just said to them, guys, keep it down, or there'll be worse to come. Button it. Tone it down. Water it down. Just keep your heads down, and that'll be it. Stop preaching. Stop telling anybody about this Jesus. And I love what Peter says. I love what Peter, he says, I hear what you're saying. But if we're left with a choice of obeying God or obeying you, guess who's going to win? Not you. Bold Christians want to please God above all else. Bold Christians want to please God above all else. I'm going to go through this point quickly because I want to finish up. But there's nothing that will stifle passion in your life more than wanting to be a people pleaser. There is nothing that will make you shrink back and, and, and water everything down and blend into the background more than wanting everybody in your world to like you. There is nothing that will cause you to walk on eggshells being terrified of offending people if you're a people pleaser, if you have approval addiction. People pleasers make decisions based on what everyone else thinks. It is impossible for you to live boldly for Jesus if you're consumed with the opinions and approval of others. I love what Paul said in Galatians 1.10. He said, am I still trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I still trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know what? When you live to please Jesus above everyone else, some people will love you, some people will hate you, some people won't care, but it won't matter as long as you're pleasing Jesus. Trying to please people over trying to please God is like being afraid of a cat but punching a lion in the face. It's being terrified of a little cat but slapping a lion in the face. You're afraid of the wrong thing. We need a holy fear of the Lord. And there's something about... People with conviction and passion that's incredibly attractive. There's something about people who are willing to stand out. And in our world today, which is bland and beige, we need people who are willing to stand out for the gospel. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Had they not just been filled two chapters before? Yeah, they're filled again. It's an ongoing thing. And spoke the word of God boldly. Bold Christians pray bold prayers. Look at the prayer they pray. It's not, Lord, protect us from these people who want to hurt us. Lord, help them to change their minds. It's not, Lord, keep us safe and help us to know the right words just not to offend anyone today, Lord. It's, Lord, give us boldness. Give us courage. Help us not to be cowards. Help us not to shrink back. Help us to keep doing what we're doing, even though we might get put in prison or killed. Help us to overcome our fear and stay bold and courageous. We need to be a people who pray bold prayers. The size of your prayers say an awful lot about the size of your God. We need to be a people who pray shameless, audacious 
prayers. Prayers that are so big that they're crazy. Prayers that if God doesn't come through, we fall flat on our face. We need to be a people who come boldly to God and pray big prayers with shameless audacity. We need to be a people who pray for boldness and and courage to do what God has called us to do. We need to sometimes just take a moment, take a deep breath, swallow and go and speak. When we arrived in Dublin seven years ago or whatever it was, our church had gone through a very difficult time. It was in debt. It was about to close, the church down there. It had gone from 350 people to about 50 people. And they were they had no money. And, and, uh, and we were about 12,000 euros in debt. And, and about our third week these two guys came in to the, into the church and they stood out. Well, everybody stood out because there weren't that many people. Um, but these two guys stood out because they were tall and tanned and didn't really look Irish. And, uh, and, and uh, after the service, they came up to talk to me and their names were Bran and Dermot. And they were originally from Dublin. But 30 years ago, moved to America to make their fortune. But we, I didn't know that at that stage, actually. They were just Bran and Dermot from America. And uh, they had moved to America. They, weren't from, they were from a very traditional Catholic family in Dublin. Moved to America. Someone gave them a... They, they got saved anyway over there. Someone one day gave them a CD of the church of, that we were at in Dublin of the worship. They said, if we're ever back in that church, we'll go and visit. They're back 10 years later. We've just arrived. I meet with them afterwards. They're in my office. And, and, and they said this. They said, we love what you're doing here. We didn't know there was a church like this in Dublin. How can we help? And my stock good Christian pastor answer for that is, would you just pray for us? Just pray. If the Lord lays it on your heart, would you pray for us? But before I could stop the words coming out of my mouth, to these two random strangers who I knew nothing about, I said, would you give us a grand a month? (laughs) And as I said, I'm standing there and I'm going, did I just say that? My brain's going, where's the filter? Where's the filter? I said, would you give us a grand a month? And they just smiled and they said, leave it with us. And away they went. And I thought, I'll never hear from them again, Americans. And uh, 10 days later, I was sitting at home and there was a knock on the door and FedEx were there and handed me an envelope and inside was a check for $15,000. 12,000 euros. Got us out of debt. Boldness got me what timidity couldn't. And I think God has saying to us, expect big things, pray big prayers because he's a big God. People with a big God pray big, bold, courageous, audacious prayers. And the world needs to see a generation who care more about God and his kingdom than what popular opinion is. The world needs people who will be bold in their faith. Not rude, not arrogant, not obnoxious. We have had enough of that. People who are lovingly bold. Who have a holy boldness. Because this is a world where the most excitement and danger most men get is in front of their PlayStation or Xbox. And we need men and women who are wholly bold. Who are willing to risk who have courage for Jesus, 
who care more about his kingdom than their own comfort. And where does this holy boldness come from as we finish verse 31? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. It comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the supernatural power to do what we could not do on our own. Who is preaching here? Peter. The same Peter who two months before standing by a campfire and a little girl says, you're one of those Jesus followers. And he goes, I, I don't know Jesus. This is the same Jesus who is now, this is the same Peter who is now proclaiming, you crucified him. Where did the boldness come from? He didn't go to a Tony Robbins self-help seminar. It came from the Holy Spirit. The power of God within him flowing through him because the dynamis, the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit changes you. Second Timothy 1.7 says this, God did not give us a spirit of timidity or fear, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. God did not give you a spirit of fear. God did not give you a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And I'm not saying you won't be scared. Faith is not the absence of fear. Boldness is not the absence of fear. Faith and boldness is seeing the fear and walking through it anyway, knowing that God walks with you. The world is crying out for people with a holy boldness. And what does it say about the building? The place where they were was shaken. Oh, that God would shake us. Some of us need shaking. I need shaking out of my slumber sometimes. Oh, that God would shake some of us. You ever said to your child when you were younger, I'll give you a good shaking. God, I want to say to you, God, give us a good shaking. Shake us out of our slumber. Shake us out of our stupidity. Shake us out of our wishy-washy blandness. Let's fit in and let's have everybody like us. God, would you shake this church? Would you shake Hope Church? And as you shake Hope Church, would you shake this community? Would you shake Craig Avon, God? Would you shake Portadown? Would you shake Lurgan? Would you shake Moira? Would you shake Bombridge? Would you shake Guilford? Would you shake Warrenstown? Would you shake Newry? Would you shake Belfast and Lisburn and everywhere around? God, would you shake it? But it happens as God's people step up in boldness and with a holy boldness pray prayers that are rightly fitting for a big God. I want to finish by reading a prayer of St. Sir Francis Drake. He was an adventurer who wrote this as he departed to the west coast of South America. And why don't we make this our prayer individually as we finish this morning and the worship team come up. Let's just take a moment. Let the Holy Spirit settle this in our hearts. Shake us, Lord. Shake me, Lord. Give me a good shaking, Lord. Shake your church, Lord. Shake your people. Disturb us, Lord, when we're too pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true because we dream too little. When we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord. When with the abundance of things that we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. 
disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas, where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push back the future in strength, courage, hope and love. This we ask in the name of our captain, who is Jesus Christ. Amen.